beautiful narrative. It's a beautiful story where we get to learn a whole lot about God and we get to learn a whole lot about uh, our relationship with others. Um, It's a good story. It has battles of wills. We have uh, rejection and forgiveness, uh, unexpected twists and turns. So I hope that you'll enjoy as we work through the narrative today. Uh, One of the reasons it's great is because it is short. Uh, I like texts that I can wrap my mind around and We're going to do that this evening. We're actually going to work our way all the way through the text. And I used to apologize for reading big sections of scripture until uh, one of the ladies at my church, an older lady that just has a super awesome relationship with God, she said, never apologize for reading, never apologize for reading the word of God. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. So we're going to spend a lot of time in God's word tonight, and I hope it'll be a blessing. The book carries the title Jonah, but this story isn't actually about Jonah. There's a whole 48 verses here, and God or God's name is referenced 39 times in those 48 verses. So is the book about Jonah? Yes. But more importantly, it's about the God of Jonah, and so that's what we're going to learn this evening. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about God and how he relates to his people. If we get lost in the journey of Jonah and miss what this text says about God, then we've missed the point of this text. So to start off our lesson on Jonah, we're going to start in the only place that makes sense, Exodus. Um, So uh, you don't have to turn there, you know the narrative. Um, In Exodus, we see God commission Moses, and uh, he's going to go to Egypt, he's going to reach uh, these, uh, or he's going to lead God's people out out of Egypt, out of captivity. And in this interaction, we see Moses being very hesitant, giving all kinds of excuses, And one of the things that happens in this conversation is Moses says, all right, well, if anyone asks, who should I say sent me? Who's sending me? And he's not really asking God his name. What he's asking is, who are you? There, at this time, there are people who view gods in different realms or areas. So there's a God of the harvest. There's a God of fertility. There's a God of the seas. And so Moses is really asking how do I define you? How do I know who you are? How do we wrap our mind around you? And God's response just really clears it up for us. God's name is, I am who I am. All right, now we know everything we need to know, right? We've totally cleared it up on who God is. I'm sure Moses in that moment was going, thanks for that. (laughs) That was super helpful, (laughs) you know? Uh, God is who he is. He is self-defining Whenever he wants to tell us who he is, he says, I am myself. We prefer nice, clean lines. We prefer to be able to put God in a box. We prefer to be able to kind of, I guess, predict his actions. And God in his own name says, I define myself. Which in my estimation is good news. Because... If I could fully comprehend who God was, if I could totally wrap my mind around who he was, my mind is limited. I am not that intelligent. And so if I could wrap my mind around who God is, that's not a very impressive God. But instead, our God is so awesome and so powerful that whenever he tries to define himself in our language, he's just like, all right, Jeremy, I'm going to do my best. I am who I am. I define me. Now, why start off our text of Jonah talking about that? Well, this, this text shows us a lot of 
characteristics that we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's our God. But then there's a couple times where we're like, ooh, that kind of makes us uncomfortable. And that's okay. Let's be challenged by that. Let's maybe stretch our definition. Let's see what um, God is doing through this text of Jonah. We have questions of theodicy where God is, is allowing some bad things to happen to people that we might think, oh, I'm not sure that they deserve it. We see God offering forgiveness to people that we don't necessarily think deserve it. And, and my invitation is just, just interact with the story. Allow the story to uh, tell us about God. Let God define himself. So let's meet the main characters of our story. If you have a Bible in front of you, Jonah 1 is where we're going to start. We're going to work our way through it. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, who are our main characters? Let's introduce them real quick. So, main characters are first, God. He starts off the story. He gives the commission. He makes no bones about it. The person in charge in this narrative is God. He is the one directing the course of history. It is not going to be ours or Jonah's to shape. The second character is Jonah, uh, the one who gets his name assigned to this. He's the son of Amittai. He's mentioned in 2 Kings 14. He's likely in the reign of Jeroboam II. Uh, the name Jonah means dove. This uh, language of dove is used a couple times to reference the uh, people of Israel in scripture. So it's possible that this text is trying to get the people of Israel to identify with Jonah, to see themselves in, in the character of Jonah. Certainly, at, at the very least, Jonah is meant to represent insiders, the people of God, those who are already in relationship with, um, with God. Finally, we have the outsiders. These are going to be the sailors in our story, and they're going to be the Ninevites. Uh, these two groups are um, non-Jews, non non-followers of God. They don't have a relationship with God. We're going to see in both cases that these people show out pretty well. They look pretty good by the end of the story. I've always wondered what it would be like to be in Jonah's shoes, or really any of the prophet's shoes, when they get a commission from the Lord. I can only imagine how empowering that would be to have God actually physically talk to me and I get to hear it and I get to respond. I just envision that being incredibly empowering. Typically in scripture that follows a form. It starts with God offering a mission and then the person either responds yes, we see that in Isaiah, uh, or with a little bit of hesitation, I'm not real sure, that's Moses. But eventually they come around to doing the will of God. Jonah breaks from that. Uh, Jonah tries the impossible. He runs. He tries to escape the presence of God, which is going to be an impossible task, right? You cannot escape the presence of God. He's, he's trying to not only avoid God, but he's trying to avoid God's mission. He's trying to avoid God's plan for this world. <clears throat> Why would Jonah avoid this commission from God. We need to understand who Nineveh is, and especially who Nineveh is in relationship to uh, the Jews. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. In Jonah, Nineveh is characterized as evil, it's wicked, and it's violent. Not a city you really want to be a part of. 
And then in Nahum, another prophet that dealt with, uh, with Nineveh, it's characterized as vile, the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. It's even characterized as a harlot. And then those who are hearing this book read to them, those who are addressed in this book, they would have remembered ancestors and the suffering that they had at the hands of the Ninevites and the Assyrians. It's understandable why an Israelite wouldn't have been super excited about this commission. It's understandable why they wouldn't have just chomped at the bit to run to Nineveh. James Lindbergh says that he's trying to give us an analogy for what it would have been like to be in Jonah's shoes and given this commission. He says a contemporary analogy would be if a Jew who had lost family in the Holocaust were asked to undertake a mission to Germany just after the Nazi period. Nineveh is the enemy. Nineveh is evil. It's all things that the, God of, or that the people of God don't want to be. And we shouldn't be shocked that Jonah runs from this commission. So Jonah tries to escape, but God's plans uh, are not going to be run from. So let's read Jonah 1, 4 through 16. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell, asleep, or fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? They're, they're grilling him right now. Um, what kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah gives an excellent answer. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked, so they asked him, What should we do? What should excuse me, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And they're not ready for this answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. Lord, have excuse me, an, an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So the major characters in this section are sailors. What is their job? They're on the water. This is They're the professionals. They've seen everything that the waves and the wind and all that has to offer. You know that they've navigated all kinds of storms. 
but they know something about this storm is different. Their reaction is genuine. They're afraid. Have you, how many of you have ever been on a plane where there's turbulence? Yeah? That's disconcerting to me. I don't enjoy that. Um, so it always happens the captain comes overboard and just in the most deadpan way possible, he says, uh, passengers, you may want to secure your seatbelts. Uh, we're going to have a couple bumps here, but we're going to find you some smooth air real soon. And so as you're making these five-foot drops of the air and your bag just falling out of the overhead bin, at some level in the back of your head, you're thinking, well, the captain's not worried, so I guess we're okay. What if the captain comes overboard and says, all of you who have faith, you better start praying now. We don't have a chance. Divine intervention's the only way we're getting through this. <laughs> I'm sure the response would be, oh, okay, we'll figure that out. Like, no, you're freaking out. That's what we see in this story. This captain who's seen everything comes to the, comes to the crew and says, well, we don't have a chance. Start praying. And so these people that are not God followers, they're not Israelites, um, not in relationship with God, they are praying to their gods. And they pray and they pray and they pray and, and nothing, nothing happens because their gods are not sovereign over the sea. And then they cast lots and they find out, oh, this Jonah guy, here's our problem. And so they ask Jonah, like, after they give him the rundown, well, why is this happening? And Jonah gives an awesome response in verse 9. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea. And the dry land. Jonah's essentially saying, my God is sovereign over creation. My God is sovereign over this situation. He can deliver us. And so the sailors are excited. Awesome. Tell us what we need to do. How do we get out of this situation? And his answer is not what they want to hear. He says, well, toss me overboard. And they're like, what? What kind of plan is that? Um, the sailors try their hardest. Can't row to, can't row to shore. Storm gets worse, and then they pray to Jonah's God and say, please don't hold this against us. They toss him overboard. When, the, when he's tossed overboard, the sea calms. God shows he's sovereign over that. When the sea stops raging, these men who were afraid of the storm are no longer afraid of the storm, but they're afraid of the God who can control the storm. They're moved to worship. And so who is the hero in this story, well, it's, not, it's not Jonah. Jonah doesn't come out looking rosy at the end of this story. The heroes in this story, the people who look faithful, it's the sailors. It's the outsiders. It's the people who are not in relationship with God. Jonah's the insider. Jonah's the spokesperson for God. And yet the people who are outsiders that we would expect less of, they're characterized as humane, pious, practical. They can grow in their theology. These, these sailors are the heroes. These outsiders are the heroes of this story. This text invites insiders, God's people, us, to think about our relationship with those who are not insiders, who are not in relationship with God, those who are considered outsiders. We'll come back to that theme here in a minute. So, uh, God doesn't forget Jonah, who got tossed overboard, who's out there swimming for dear life. Uh, let's see what happens to Jonah 
in, well, in chapter 1 and then go through chapter 2. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights from inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. I, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. As you hear this, you should be hearing a psalm. This is, this is what this is. This is a psalm of praise to God who heard him in his distress. It swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. I am destitute. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. I remember as a child the image that used to come to my mind. Um, I, I don't know if you guys can see this very well. The picture's not great itself, but this is Pinocchio. Um, if you remember that story, Geppetto and Pinocchio, they get swallowed by this huge whale whose name is Monstro, and then they got, have to figure out how to get out. My childlike faith, this is, this is what I envisioned. Um, I don't know if you identify with that, but that was how I envisioned Jonah in his time inside this massive fish. And again, as a child, I always saw this fish as a punishment. It's hard not to see living inside a fish as anything other than punishment, but uh, Jonah doesn't see it that way. Jonah sees deliverance. God appoints the fish to rescue Jonah. This is an act of mercy. In response to this act of mercy, in response to this deliverance, Jonah composes this beautiful song or psalm to celebrate God, to uh, tell God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for remembering me. In his lowest moment, God remembered Jonah. And we don't have time to unpack this, but... Um, this is, there's a beautiful message here to the person who feels lost, who feels like they are overwhelmed, the person who feels like, for lack of a better term when we're talking about Jonah, who feels like they're drowning. Um, the person that maybe has lost a loved one, the person who maybe has lost a job, who is searching. And, and the model that we see in Jonah in this story is to pray, is to pray and call out to the God who's sovereign and the God who can deliver. And it might not be what you expect. I'm sure when God, or whenever Jonah was calling out for deliverance, he wasn't thinking fish. Um, but God delivers. And that model is there for us as well. We don't have time to fully unpack that. But the main thing that I want us to see from this scene, it, it's going to be irony. 
um, and we'll see that in a minute, but Jonah is celebrating his deliverance, his forgiveness. What does Jonah deserve? He ran from God. He disobeyed. He sinned. He deserves punishment. He deserves destruction. And yet he cries out and God offers mercy. God delivers Jonah from his circumstances and he forgives his sins and he recommissions him. Jonah's prayer celebrates this forgiveness, celebrates the mercy of God. And we're meant to see this response and how Jonah can celebrate his own forgiveness. But if you know the rest of the story, Jonah doesn't necessarily do the same song and dance. He's not as excited whenever that same forgiveness is offered to others. So, to continue on the narrative, God instructs the fish. All right, spit him out. And so Jonah spit out onto dry land, and then God recommissions Jonah. All right, do what I told you initially. Go to Nineveh. Um, we're going to see his ministry in Nineveh and um, how Nineveh responds. We'll read chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Same commission. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 days, or excuse me, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Then Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Again, Jonah's given the commission, go to the great city of Nineveh. We already covered what Nineveh was, its wickedness um, and its evil, uh, all the things that are wrong and that deserve destruction. They do deserve destruction from God. The text says that the city is huge. It says it's a three days walk to cross it. Now, um, that's probably at some level a storyteller's exaggeration. Uh, I like what uh, James, or excuse me, it was uh, Hans Walter Wolf said, the reader is not meant to do arithmetic to try to figure out how big the city is. The intent is wonder. Wow, what a city. It's huge. It's huge. And what is Jonah's message to this huge, massive metropolis? It's a beautiful sermon that invites them into relationship with God. It is 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's a whole five words. If Jonah is successful as a prophet, it's not going to be because he was eloquent. If Jonah is successful as a prophet, it's not going to be because he had some kind of rhetorical skills or a beautiful speech. It's going to be because God did something powerful. He offers a whole five words to condemn 
this city of Nineveh. And the original hearers are going to hear this. He says, 40 days and you'll be overthrown. And then the original hearers, these Israelites, are expecting the next line to be, and then the Lord sent fire on Nineveh and burned up the entire wicked city. That's, that's not what happens, though. At least that's not what's in my Bible. Right? Something totally unexpected, shocking happens. This evil, wicked city turns, and not just the city, but the king. The leader of this unholy, wicked city, he humbles himself. He takes off all of his symbols of authority, his robe, his throne. He begins to fast. He calls everyone in the kingdom to fast. He even says the animals are going to fast, which I envision the cows like, wait, what did I do? You know, Everyone is going to humble themselves. And the king says, let everyone call urgently on God. Listen to the faith of this. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. What a powerful and unexpected response. And he doesn't expect God to relent or forgive, but he hopes. He leaves open the possibility. He is hopeful that God will relent. As with the sailors, these Ninevites, they look pretty good in the story. They look faithful. These outsiders, these uh, non-Jews, these people who don't have relationship with God, well, they look good in this story. God sees their response, and he offers the same thing he did the sailors. He offers deliverance. He offers deliverance. God forgives this city. And then the next chapter, this is where we get some really good theology. This is fun. Um, we see, we're going we're gonna to read the rest, Jonah's response, and then kind of talk about some holistic observations. So let's finish with chapter 4. But to Jonah, right after God has said, I'm not going to send destruction. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You can almost see like Jonah waving his fist at God for these characteristics. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And then he gives what's a strange response for a guy who just had a whole city repent. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, he provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would, be better for, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. 
It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Jonah is not happy with God. The literal translation is, and Jonah was displeased with a great displeasure. (laughs) Okay, he's not happy. Um, It's as if Jonah knew that there was a chance that God would relent and not bring destruction, and and so he ran because he didn't want this to be an option. Jonah knows God to be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents in sending calamity. And his response sounds like one of my teenagers. Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I actually wrote in my margin, dramatic. Um, It sounds like one of our teens that's been dating someone for a whole week, and they break up, and they're like, oh, I'm devastated. I'm like, what? Uh, But I I envisioned Jonah just... I'm distraught, and God going, okay, here we go. We'll, we'll talk through it. I imagine whenever Jonah gets to heaven, he's going to have a funny conversation with guys like Isaiah or Jeremiah. These are prophets that had less than ideal conditions and talked to people who wouldn't listen, and Jonah goes in and says five words, and 120,000 people respond to his invitation of the sermon, right? And he's angry about it. That doesn't make sense, right? It shouldn't make sense to us. It's almost as if Jonah is saying, if they are in, I'm out. If they can be in relationship with you, if they can have your love, then I'm not sure I want that relationship. And as God tends to do, he's an excellent teacher. He asks a good question. Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have any right to dictate who receives my love and forgiveness? This is reminiscent of two parables that you know from Jesus' teaching. Uh, The uh, prodigal son. Whenever the younger son comes back, the older brother will not go in. He will not celebrate. He will not identify with uh, his, his father and the love that his father has. He's just angry. He can't celebrate. That sounds like Jonah. Also, the, the workers that work a full day and receive a certain pay, and then the workers who only work part of the day and receive the same pay, those original workers are upset. And, and Jesus says, well, I mean, you received the reward. What are you worried about? In the same way, Jonah received this reward, but he's upset that someone else received the same reward. then we see this kind of funny scene, and I think it's meant to be satire. It's meant to be humorous, where God sends a plant, and Jonah's super excited about this plant. He loves this plant. He spends a whole day with this plant, and then the plant dies, because God sends a worm and sends scorching heat, and Jonah's distraught again. He's upset, and God asks the same question. Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry about this? And he's really, he's asking, why do you invest so much emotional energy in the life of a plant, but you don't care about the lives in Nineveh, the lives of outsiders? The text ends on a question. The only other 
prophet that ends on a question is uh, Nahum, I believe. Um, it's this. Oh, oops. That was God's question. An excellent question. All right, now this. Uh, God ends with uh, this question. It wraps up your text. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? They are lost. And also many animals. The language uh, in the NIV is, should I not have concern? Some texts say, should I not have pity? A, a little literal translation, or what it um, connotates, is the eye flows on account of. The depiction that God gives of himself in relation to Nineveh is tears. He cries at the idea of them being lost, at the idea of them being wicked. And then his, his tears flow again at repentance, at the opportunity to be in relationship with them again. And the question throughout this text has been, who cares about Nineveh? Who cares about outsiders? Who cares about lost people? And the answer is, God does. God cares about those who are not insiders. And the implication of the text, what it implies for Jonah, is that Jonah should care too. So, uh, we've completed the narrative. I want to make a few observations. Um, we started off by talking about God's divine name. He gets to define himself, so let's see how God defines himself within the narrative of Jonah. First, God is sovereign. This is incredibly important. He's sovereign over all, including creation. It is God who says, waves, go. Wind, go. Uh, fish, eat. Right? And plants, and all of that. God is sovereign over those. And that's something at times we take great comfort in, and then, to be honest, sometimes this makes us a little bit uncomfortable, if, if we're going to be brutally honest. Things like Houston make us a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and that's okay. We can live in that tension. Um, sometimes God chooses to act, and then sometimes God allows things to happen and waits for his people to act in a powerful way. Um, and, and we just need to live in that tension that God is, God is sovereign. He is capable, but he doesn't always choose to act through creation. Uh, we also see he's sovereign over history. While Jonah runs, God says, well, actually, Jonah, you're not in control. You don't get to dictate how this goes. And so he brings him back to his original plan. God dictates this history. He's sovereign over history. The second, God gets to define justice and mercy. And I think this is something we really need to internalize, um, especially, and my teens wrestle with this big time, um, the fact that God is the one who defines justice and mercy. If we're looking at the people of Nineveh, we probably think, yeah, they deserve destruction. They've been wicked. Is God any less just because he chooses not to destroy them or punish them for their actions? Well, of course not. Why? Because God is the one who gets to define justice. God is the definition of justice. Same with mercy. Um, it is God who gets to discern what mercy looks like. And so if God chooses to forgive these wicked Ninevites and even forgive this wicked prophet who runs from him, well, then he's offered mercy because God defines mercy. Does God always act in that same manner? Well, no. You just have to look at Ananias and Sapphira and, and see that you know he didn't act in exactly the same way. Was he any less merciful? Well, of course not because... 
God defines mercy, not us. So we need to be really careful about putting our definitions of mercy and justice and love on God because we don't get to define those. God defines those. Um, Next, God is deeply concerned. We learn from the book of Jonah. God is deeply concerned over lost people, over people who are not in relationship with him. God desperately, desperately wants relationship with those who are lost. He'll forgive great atrocities if people will repent and acknowledge him as Lord. So those are three takeaways. There's certainly more we can glean from this text about what we learn about God, but I also want to talk about us. This is a look in the mirror moment. As the text starts to draw to a close, it's talking to Jonah, but it's really also starting to talk to the audience. The questions that are asked are asked of Jonah, but man, this writer knows what he's doing, and he's, he's starting to angle it towards us as well, the reader. What do we do with these questions? So Jonah is, Jonah is you. Jonah's me. Jonah is the hearer of this text. We're meant to identify with him. And I wonder, do you suffer from Jonah syndrome? Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm about to decide or discern if you are sick, right? If you suffer from Jonah syndrome. A few symptoms for you. Uh, and if this describes you, you need to get healthy. You need to get back in relationship with God. You need to start prioritizing um, God and God's will. So, first... If you are able to celebrate your own forgiveness, but you won't offer grace to others, you may have Jonah syndrome. If you cry out to God and repent of your sin, but then you won't allow others to do the same, if you judge others who have sin in their life and turn, if you don't celebrate at the return of a lost person, well, then you, you might have Jonah syndrome. Right? Second, if you prefer to keep God to yourself, you might have Jonah syndrome. As I was writing this, it kind of sounded like uh, Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck. I didn't intend that. Um, the, uh, if you prefer to keep God to yourself, you might have Jonah syndrome. You know, uh, That was not my intent. So, if you prefer to keep God to yourself, if you prefer the country club mentality of insiders and outsiders, draw clean lines, um, if there are certain people that you just wouldn't feel comfortable walking through the doors of a church, that you might have Jonah syndrome. You might suffer from uh, this mentality that Jonah has, where he thinks certain people don't belong, where certain people don't fit in, where they have to look and act like me before they can be in relationship with God, and, and that's that's not okay. Third, if you are not deeply concerned about the lives of lost people, you might have Jonah syndrome. I love how James Lindbergh says, I don't have it on the board, so just follow with me here. He says, the book of Jonah reminds us that the people of God exist for the sake of the people of the world and warns against an arrogant insider-outsider mentality. It speaks a word of criticism against a people, this language is great. It speaks a word of criticism against a people who prefer huddling and cuddling in the safety of their own groups to being about the task to which Jesus called them, go and make disciples. It warns a people of God against the danger of forgetting 
that they are ambassadors, participating in the reconciling of the world to God. If you are not deeply concerned about lost people, about people who don't have a relationship with God, then you're no better than Jonah. And then finally, Jonah syndrome. You might have Jonah syndrome if you avoid opportunities to share faith. We see Jonah physically run. We're typically a little bit more subtle than that, right? But all of us have been guilty of opportunities to share our faith, and we pass because we're worried or we're uncomfortable. And in those moments, we're no better than Jonah. We're no better than this prophet who runs. I'm almost done. I hope that wasn't the final bell. All right, excellent. Uh, Bells always scare me. We don't have any in the youth wings, so they always throw me off. All right, so uh, if, if you avoid sharing your faith, it, it's time to refocus. It's time to gain the heart of God for the world around you. All right, to wrap up, good news. If you have Jonah Syndrome, there's a prescription. Take it down to Walgreens. They'll fill it. All right. Um, the first is spend time in Scripture and prayer. And it, this sounds like a platitude. Right? This sounds like something you just are supposed to say in a sermon. If you need help, spend time in Scripture and prayer. But it's, it's through interacting with God in prayer and through his word that we start to share his heart for the world. It's whenever we read about how he cares about outsiders that we start to care about outsiders. It's whenever we start to pray for our enemies, that's whenever we start to have a heart for our enemies. Through scripture and prayer, we start to work on our hearts and develop the heart of God for the world. Second, we have to humble ourselves. Acknowledge our own brokenness. If you suffer from Jonah syndrome, you have to acknowledge your own need for forgiveness. And when we celebrate our need for forgiveness, then we start to recognize and don't hold it against other people that they need forgiveness as well. We want them to experience that forgiveness. We want them to experience that relationship with God. When we humble ourselves, we start to break down walls so that there's no longer any kind of insider or outsider mentality. And then third and finally, if you want to get over your Jonah syndrome, share your faith. Share your faith. Jonah does this so reluctantly. Let's not take that attitude. Look for opportunities to be able to speak about the hope that you have in God, the hope that you have through Christ. This is a lost world, a world who's desperately in need of relationship with God. If they can get even an ounce of hope, that's going to be incredibly appealing. So in whatever context, look for opportunities to share your faith. It doesn't have to be a sit-down Bible study, but we should all be able to witness to the work that God has done in our life and celebrate the work that God has done in and around us. And one word of caution, we tend to look for the easy targets whenever it comes to evangelism. We tend to look to people that we think are going to respond correctly. But when we look at Nineveh, none of us would have expected them to repent, right? Let's not be the ones who decide who we think is going to respond to the gospel well or who isn't. Let's offer it to everybody. Let's offer it to any and everyone that we come into contact with that doesn't know God. All right, so that's how we get over Jonah Syndrome. I hope that you are blessed by spending time in the narrative of Jonah. I love that story. I love what it tells us about us. I love what it tells us about God. 
And, and really the text over and over is asking, who cares about Nineveh? Who cares about outsiders? Who cares about lost people? Who cares about those who don't have a relationship with God? And the answer of the text is, God does. God cares about them. And hopefully our reply will be, so do we. So do we. Thank you guys for having me out tonight. It was such a blessing uh, to, to be able to share God's word with you, and hopefully you were blessed by the time spending God's word. I'm going to wrap us up in prayer, and then I think we're dismissed. Is that right? Okay, great. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we celebrate you and honor you because you are the only one who is worthy of praise. God, you are truly awesome and powerful, and we are humbled to be in your presence. God, we thank you for your word that speaks so powerfully to us. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you for allowing us to see his successes and and often his failures. And God, my prayer is that we will learn from those. God, we see that you have a heart of justice, that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God that forgives, that you are a God that cares desperately for those who are not in relationship with you. And God, my prayer for us is that we will share your heart. God, give us your heart for this world. Help us to see people with your eyes. Give us the words that we need. Let your spirit work powerfully through us so that we can offer hope through your son, Jesus. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.